Hold on to your earbuds. This episode marks the first of a series that I would like to call I Wonder. Originally, I wanted to call it Ali Knows, or Neurobabble, but those names don't really get the point across. The purpose of this kind of podcast within a podcast is to ask the harder questions, the questions you don't find on board exams or in textbooks, and I'm not promising you any answers. After all, they are my questions. To bring you the answers, though, I've recruited the smartest guy I know. You've heard him before on several Brainwaves episodes, that guy who knows entirely too much about the vestibular system, Dr. Ali Hamidani. Just give us a second while we get set up for this essentially improv Q&A show. Is this good? Yeah. Yes, this is actually us getting set up. Do I need to? I can talk louder, too, if you need. Just talk in, just speak your normal volume. My indoor voice or my outdoor voice? Your your six-inch voice. (laughs) What is a six-inch voice? The six-inch voice was the voice that we had in my sixth-grade art class that the teacher asked us to use whenever we were talking so that it wouldn't make such a loud ruckus with all of us talking at once, as if we're talking next to each other. Hmm. So you asked me what this particular podcast is going to be about. Ali, I want you to whisper into our ears... (laughs) And tell us these insightful little comments that you have that you've been gathering and and growing, nurturing them as if they're seeded plants in a garden. And I want you to nurture those into the minds of the listeners of this podcast, okay? So some of the questions that I had come up with were things like, should surgeons be nicer people? Um... If Trump had to die of a neurologic disease, what do you think would be the best neurologic disease for him to die from? That's pretty moribund. But the question that I actually do want to ask you today is one that my aunt actually emailed me over this week. And uh, as a busy resident, and you're a busy doctor, and everybody's busy in their own respective domains that they just don't have time to follow the news or to follow popular culture or read the internet or to read the newspaper. They just don't have time for these kinds of things. So I rely on my family to notify me of world events and things that are going on, or else I probably wouldn't have heard of half these things. So my aunt sent me an email about a New York Times article that came about on April the 10th, and I'm going to post this link on the website if we do air this episode. (laughs) So everyone can know. Big if. So everybody can know what exactly we are talking about today. The question was, how much does a patient's attitude impact your decision-making and your care for that patient? Specifically, if a patient is rude to you, how much rudeness does it take before that can actually impact negatively a patient's care? And, Ali, I, I thought that I would ask you this because of all the doctors that I know, you have the most composure, you are the coolest under pressure, and... I think that you have the most experience with this because nothing pisses you off. (laughs) Well, that's all a facade. Inside, I'm raging just like anyone else. (laughs) He says this with a smile. Um, Well, so I think um, the care that patients receive 
uh, and the extent to which their attitude can affect it can occur in two different kind of settings or steps. So one is the care that you offer, um, because at the end of the day, after a clinic visit, you recommend a certain set of diagnostic tests and a certain set of medications. So one thing is the recommendations you provide. But I think the other is the manner in which you provide them, how strongly you advocate for certain things or not, how passionately you feel about whether a patient does one thing or another, uh, and then how closely you're going to follow them and, and see them through. So kind of starting at the end and working your way further back, I think when you have a rapport with patients, uh, when you feel like they understand you and you understand them well and you get along, it makes it easier to have conversations with them, both in the initial visit and um, telephone calls afterwards. So I know there's some patients we look forward to hearing from and, uh, and then others that we secretly kind of hope that they'll just wait until the next time or, or something like that. So I, I think that's one, one aspect of things is how you deliver your recommendations. And then the other, just to kind of track a little further back then, is the actual care you provide. So I would like to think that I provide the same care to patients regardless of whether I like them or not. I know that realistically, I'm sure that's not 100% true. And there's implicit biases in any form, uh, you know, have been shown to have significant effects on the way that healthcare is delivered. And that's specifically what this article from the New York Times actually references is a couple of studies in which there are these implicit biases in physician and nursing care uh, based on what the patient or the patient's family does in that kind of hospital environment. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think one thing that I try to do when I feel like I'm encountering that kind of situation is to take a step back mentally and almost uh, dehumanize the situation, for lack of a better term. So uh, and, you know, you know, we in medicine are taught to treat people with respect and to really appreciate the humanity in it, um, that you're treating an individual, a person, not a patient. But I think when that individual or person uh, rubs you the wrong way, sometimes it actually is helpful to take a step back and view them just for a little bit as a patient. And then when I do that, I find that it's maybe it's a bit of a deterrent towards deviating from the care that I would normally provide. So after you dehumanize the human... (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) No, I think that that's a really great way of describing it. I think that I would do the same, and I probably have done the same. You know, doctors, as everybody knows, nursing staff, hospital employees, anybody in the medical profession, they're under a tremendous amount of stress because they do feel responsible for these patients and their lives and their health and whether or not they even survive seeing you the next time. It's incredibly burdensome for you. And one way that I think about it is, you know, I do try to imagine what it's like to be in their shoes. And I think this kind of goes back into one of the old maxims that I learned as a kid growing up in Arkansas is that you don't want to abide by the golden rule of treating others as you want to be treated. You want to treat others as they would want to be treated. The platinum rule. And these patients are under a tremendous amount of stress, just like you are. It's a different kind of stress. It's a different kind of way that this situation affects them mentally and physically and emotionally. And you do have to respect that. So whenever I am frustrated with a patient or a family because they are yelling at me or accusing me of negligence or malpractice, I just try to say, you know, they're under a tremendous amount of stress. Yeah, no, Jim, I think your Arkansas wisdom is spot on and... Yeehaw. (laughs) 
you know, I'm fortunate in that I've been quite healthy and I've never had to be an inpatient before or to to really have any major medical problem treated. My family is also quite healthy, so I haven't had to be in the role of a family member tending to a sick loved one. So sometimes I try to think, you know, what, how would I act if my father or significant other or sibling or whoever was in the doctor's office or in the hospital. I like to think that I would be nice and respectful and I wouldn't butt in too much. I actually, whenever I do go to a doctor's appointment with my family, which is not often, I like try to avoid even mentioning my profession. Usually they volunteer it or you, sometimes the question you ask kind of announces that you know something about healthcare. But certainly imagining it and the real thing or living the real thing are two different things. So I don't know what I'll be like. Hopefully I never have to find out. Is there a specific instance you can think of that had been particularly difficult for you to manage as a resident or where a patient or their family member had approached you in an aggressive or uncomfortable way? And and if so, how did you deal with it? Uh, yeah, so there was one instance in which I was seeing a patient uh, as a consult who initially saw her for um, some headache and some other complaints, but later a basically a functional gait disorder emerged that had some kind of non-organic features to it. Uh, and so I was examining her, I was testing gait, and her the patient's spouse, who was very caring and close with them, uh, really didn't want them to fall, and so it was being very cautious and holding onto them and really not allowing us to really examine the gate fully. And, the, you know, the main goal was to to capture a gate that was, you know, non-organic that, you know, had sort of classic astasia, abasia, and would stumble but never fall and things like that. And uh, so I, like, encouraged the spouse to take a step back that I would ensure that they didn't fall and things like that. And I think they trusted me necessarily. And so later I was sort of accused of putting them in danger and things like that. Um, so I think that's especially challenging you know, someone who's sick and in the hospital and whose partner cares for them very deeply. But also, I think dealing with psychogenic disorders heightens the complexity of, of explaining oneself and then the challenges of get of convincing people in a way that, that establishes a meaningful and therapeutic relationship. Interestingly, it's a patient that I've continued to follow for quite some time. And uh, she and I get along very well, but I haven't seen her spouse since then because he lives elsewhere. I actually have to say, though, I'm always a little fearful that he'll come one day and he may or may not remember me, but so I'll have that to look forward to. <laughs> so you had to take steps towards treating somebody with a functional gait disorder. No pun intended. <laughs> and, you know, one takeaway point that I learn from that story is that that some of the best treatment for these situations not just these patients but these situations and circumstances is to continue to follow the patient continue to make sure that they're improving and to provide reassurance just increasing the overall face time with the person and their family yeah and i think especially if the challenge is a patient where you feel like you have a good relationship with the patient but not with their family member you know i certainly strive to have a good relationship with everyone because I think it's, you know, in the best interest of the patient's overall care to have support on all sides. And 
I'm sure that uh, a family member who's supportive of your recommendations will lead to them being followed more closely than if they weren't and are going to discourage the patient from following them once they go home. But I think at the end of the day, you know, if you can't make everyone happy, you should prioritize making the patient happy first. And one thing that I learned to accept during this encounter was, you know, her husband may never like me and I'm just gonna have to live with that and take comfort in the fact that the patient and I still have a therapeutic relationship. Well, there you have it. Our first episode of the I Wonder series featuring Dr. Ali Hamidani. Again, I posted a link to that New York Times article on the website, brainwaves.me, so check that out for more information. That wraps it up this week. This episode was produced by me with music by Peter Rudenko, Lovira, and Steve Combs. For the latest updates, follow us on our website. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Jim Siegler. See you next time.